saints, if you would open your Bibles to the Apocalypse, Revelation chapter 12, um, as we continue our study through this book this morning. I want us to look at the tail end of this chapter, and just as we're really looking at this whole issue of persecution, and as we're looking at this area of persecution, let's just begin by looking in verse 12. We're going to read all the way down through verse 17. Our key verse is going to be verse 17, but um, I want to keep us in context here. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now, verse 13. When the devil saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. From the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which a dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And verse 17 And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We see here that, you know, what we're noting is that this woman, and then ultimately where it says in verse 17, where her offspring become this exclusive and distinct object of Satan's persecution. So what we're seeing here, in a sense, is as we go through, look at verse 12 one more time, where he says, rejoice, you know, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Satan has been kicked out of heaven. Satan has been cast down. And so heavens rejoice. But in the same time, he says, heavens rejoice, he says, but on the other side, oh, but woe to the earth. Now, at this point, remember when we were back in chapter 11, verse 14, where Paul had said he had heard the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And we made a, a note that the rest of these chapters up to verse 19 is that third woe. But I want you to see here that when Satan is kicked out of heaven, that there is this really this term that says woe now to the inhabitants of the earth. And so I want you to see here that if you've ever heard that quote from um, Winston Churchill, he, two quotes that is, is pretty powerful from him. The first is, never surrender. And the other one is, never, never, never give up. And I think it's a great, great quote that he has. However, Satan just takes this to heart. Because if you understand, Satan never gives up. The first thing that we see here within this chapter, if you remember, when we were back in verse 4, that he drew his, his, uh, his tail drew a third of the stars in verse 4, and he drew them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. 
The first thing he tries to do is he tries to stop this woman. He tries to stop Israel from bringing forth the Messiah. And what's interesting is he loses that battle. And as soon as he tries to stop the woman, eventually in verse 5, she bore the male child who was to rule the nations, and her child and who was to rule all the nations, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So at this point, we noted that here Satan, he said, I'm going to take care of Christ, I'll crucify him on the cross. And yes, he thinks he wins, but he loses again. Because the Messiah, after he pays the penalty for our sins, is now caught up into heaven. Well, once he loses that battle in verse 7, then he goes up to heaven himself and he tries to make war against God. But God doesn't fight against him at all. He just simply sends an angel. Why do I want to bother with you? I'll just send Michael. You'll be cast out. We'll be fine. And so keep in mind that he first pursues the woman, then he pursues the child, then he pursues God and his throne again. And after he does that and he loses and he's kicked out of heaven, then when we see in verse 13, the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Then he begins to persecute Israel one more time. Well, what God does is he brings Israel in a remnant now to a place in the wilderness where he's going to protect her for the three and a half years, that time, which is one year, times, which is two years, and then half a time, which you know basically brings down to three and a half years, the end of the Great Tribulation. So he then protects the woman, and after he's done he, where he can't do anything to the woman as God protects Israel, and then he goes right back to verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Understand, for whatever reason, he just does that Winston Churchill quote. He never, never, never gives up. And I think that's important for you and I to realize as Christians, the enemy of our soul will never give up. It's not like he's going to say, oh, I'm tired now. I'm going to give it a break. He doesn't give up. He doesn't surrender. He attacks one. And then when he loses, he attacks again. And he loses, he attacks again. And he loses. He just constantly, even though he keeps losing, he keeps attacking. And I think that you and I as Christians, we have to understand this about our adversary. He never, never, never gives up until eventually he'll be cast into, you know, um, the, the bottomless pit, and then eventually he'll be cast into the lake of fire. At that point, I don't think he'll be giving up. He'll still be trying to escape. Nothing's going to happen because God's going to take care of him. But understand, as a Christian, so often we think, oh, the enemy's done. I, I think he's not going to, you know, there's going to be no more temptations. There's going to be no, note this. He never, never, never gives up. But although he doesn't give up, guess what? <laughs> we don't have to worry about that. Why? Because we're, we're 2 Corinthians 10. I want to read to you two verses from there. I want to read verses 3 and 4, just speaking of what we are and who we are as believers. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Our weapons that we have we don't fight the way the enemy does. We don't use his tactics. We don't use his schemes. Well, we shouldn't as Christians. Some do. I think they're wrong in that. But the weapons of our warfare is that we can go into our prayer closets. We can go before the Lord and we can you know, say, Lord, 
we understand what? That vengeance is yours. The battle is yours. It's not mine. It's yours. And once we, we recognize that, then that whole understanding of 1 John 1, 4, 4 makes that, um, where in 1 John 4, 4, he says that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We understand that Christ in us is greater than the enemy. But when we come to this battle, if you are a Christian that have been, you know, a believer for, you know, more than three days, you'll, you'll realize that there's that wonderful passage in the book of Ephesians where it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And there in Ephesians chapter 6, and I want to read it to you just so that you can, you know, hold on to and grasp what it is that, that we're dealing with this morning. In Ephesians 6, I'm going to start reading in verse 11. And I want to read down to verse 18, just as he goes through this whole armor of God. So when Paul was writing to the church of Ephesus, he makes this statement, Ephesians 6 verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The devil has his methods. And what we're doing is this. He says, I want you to stand against them. Now, note this. He doesn't say run away from them. If you note here, the armor is only on the front. It's not on the back side. It's on the front side. You can stand. But understand that when it comes, so often we think that we're going to attack Satan. We don't attack Satan. I love what Michael did when he was disputing with Satan over the body of Moses there in Jude. Even Michael, the archangel, simply says this. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. I'm not going to go again. Let, let, simply let God and his word deal with you. And this is what we see even with us, that we're called eventually. Our goal is to this. Just don't worry about the enemy. God's going to protect us from the enemy. But what we do is this. We want to go into his camp. And we want to pull out those who are blinded and who are deceived and who do not know the Lord, who've not experienced the grace of salvation. And we want to be able to do what? Share that love of God. And through sharing the love of God and doing it in the actions of the love of God, we'll be drawing people out of the enemy's camp. So we can literally, we just, just we do sorties. We just go in and we, we love people, we pull them out. We go in, we love people, we share the gospel, they receive, we pull them out. That's our goal. But he does call us because the enemy does have methods. The enemy does have wiles. He does have his schemings. He says, I want you to be able to stand against that. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So understand that you're not battling against those people who are battling you. It isn't a battle of, of flesh on flesh. It isn't a battle of person on person. We understand as Christians that it's the power behind those people. It's not the people themselves, it's the power behind them. And so we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We realize it's the powers behind them. Therefore, verse 13, Paul says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Now, keep in mind that there are things that we do as Christians. We go to the Word. We pray. We, we study to show ourselves approved. We, we constantly want God to sanctify us. Those are things that we can do. 
But there's things that, that we, having done all that we can do, we have to rely on what? On God. We have to rely on God and his power and what he declares here. It says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So the first thing he says, I want you to gird your waist with the truth. And as you gird your waist with the truth, you're putting on here absolute truth as far as this belt. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, guarding your heart. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And understands that we're walking out in the gospel. We're walking out in peace with God and peace with man. And verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. So through this, we see here, you have done everything you can. You have the helmet of your salvation. You take the word of God and then what? We pray. And as we pray, he says this in verse 18, being watchful to the end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Pray for one another. So these are the things that we do as we recognize here the enemy has this goal. The enemy wants to simply destroy. But we are not powerless, but the power that we have is not in our own. It's not in our own schemings. It's not in our own wiles. It's not a power that we have. So what is it that's going on? Why do we see such a hatred now towards the woman? Why do we see such hatred towards her offspring? Well, if you're familiar with the passage in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the scripture tells Eve that there is going to be the seed of the woman. There is going to be the light that comes into the world. There is going to be the Messiah. And so at this point, because of Adam's sin and the penalty, the curse that came with it, that there is going to be this hope. And what God does is before he says, listen, there's going to be consequences for your sin, which there are always, he does say before he even says there's consequences, he says, hey, there's hope in me. I want you to know there's hope in me but yet there's going to be consequences for your sin. And he talks about the seed of the woman. And after he talks about the seed of the woman, eventually as we go through the book of Genesis in chapter 22, verse 18, it talks about the seed of Abraham. And through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. At that point, we see here that when the enemy knew there was going to be a seed of the woman, that, okay, we're going to deal with this. We're going to figure out who this is. But when Abraham, when God chose Abraham, and he realized, Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. At that point, now the sights of the enemy is zeroed into Abraham and his descendants. And what we realize this as Christians that the real key to Abraham and his descendants are not the physical descendants, although that's going to be the case, and it is the case today. But we realize as Christians that the, it's also with his spiritual descendants, that those who are Jews on the inward. And I think it's important to really make a note of this 
And we're seeing here that the reason why Satan persecutes the woman and he persecutes her offspring is this. One, they're chosen by God. They're loved by God. The light has come into the hearts and he hates the light. And I think what happens is this. Once he realized that there was going to be this hope, once he realized that God was going to send the seed, there, there was going to be a redemption of mankind. He began to want to prevent that redemption of mankind. So persecution of the woman. And then when Abraham comes, it's now persecution of Abraham and his descendants. I want to share with you just a couple of scriptures found in the book of Deuteronomy. And I want to show you just how God has chosen Israel. And the very fact that God has chosen Israel and then through Israel will come the Redeemer is why the enemy now is so frustrated and is so determined to stop Israel from being. The first is found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 6 through 16, and then we're going to jump over to um, chapter 10. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6, it declares this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. So God is telling Israel, I've chosen you to be this special treasure of mine. Well, what does that mean? It means the enemy, like this spoiled little kid, is wanting to destroy this special treasure of God. Now, verse 7 it declares this in Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, verse 9, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and who keep his commandments. And verse 10, he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. And he will not be slack with him who hates him, and he will repay him to his face. Therefore, verse 11, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, the judgments which I command you today. Observe them. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments, and you keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep you with the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And now in verse 13, and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. And he will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land and the grain and your new wine and your oil and the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock and the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed, for verse 14, above all the peoples. Therefore, 
There shall be not a male or female or barren among you in all your livestock, and you will take away, and he, the Lord will take away from you all the sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, and he will lay them on all those who hate you. Now, I want to pause here because I want you to note verse 15 for just a second, because this is the cause of much of the hatred to the Jew today. It says again in verse 15, the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay on them, but will lay them on all those who hate you. When there are a culture that begins to despise the Jew, what God does is this, he protects the Jew and he deals with that culture. And part of the way that he protects the Jew is one just through the dietary laws that he gave to them. That if you have any understanding of what was happening with the Black Plague, the reason the Jews didn't die is because they didn't, they treated their food and they dealt with disease and they dealt with um, if there was mold or any issues, they would just get rid of these things. They would throw them out because this is what God said to the Jews. I want you to be holy. I want you to be clean. If there's an issue here, get rid of it. If there's an issue here, get rid of it. And he talked to them as far as how to wash and how to be clean. And the Jews would do that. And because of their dietary um, laws and they kept the, the, the sanitary laws that they did not get the diseases of the other nations. And because of that, these nations would really have an animosity now towards the Jewish nation. But understand, although they had this animosity, I'm going to make this statement here and we'll develop it a little further as we get through the study. That animosity is satanic. It, it is, it's just satanic. The, the God has you know, the God of this world has blinded them. He's deceived them. And so understand that that hatred, some of it looks like it's, it, you know, it kind of makes sense. Why are these Jews not getting sick and we're all dying? Well, one is your hatred towards them. And two is they're following God's word. And God's word is you do this and you will live. Well, verse 16, and you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, I want to start reading in verse 14 all the way down to verse 22. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and all that is within it. Verse 15. For the Lord delighted... Only in your fathers to love them. You have to understand, this is God's heart to you and to me. He delights in us. Why? Just to love us. You're like, wait a second, that's all he does is love us? Yes. And he doesn't expect anything more. Just, I want to set my love upon you. That's his delight. And he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples as it is this day. Verse 16, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And be stiff-necked no longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice to the fatherless and the widow. He loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you 
were strangers in the land of Egypt. And I love this. God said, I set my love upon you, so do this. <laughs> love other people. And isn't that the key? When they ask the Lord, what is the greatest commandment? He says, just love me and love people. So we see here, verse 20, that you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and, and him shall you hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done this for you. He is the great and all these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in the multitude. So we see here that God chooses Israel. Now once God chose Israel and he chose to set his love upon him and he chose then to allow the Messiah to come through the, the lineage of Abraham and through the lineage of David. Every time God does that, Satan narrows his attack and begins to seek to destroy. And that's what the enemy does. When we come this next Wednesday and we begin to look at chapter 13, I want to share with you a little bit about just what the enemy does, how he hates Israel and what this attack is going to be. In Revelation 13, we'll be looking at that this Wednesday. In verse 7, it declares this. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So you have to understand that there is going to be a point, and there are certain times where the enemy gives or where the Lord gives the enemy, he grants him authority. He has no authority, but God grants him authority. That's why verse 7 says this, authority was given him over every tribe. He doesn't have it naturally. He has to go to God and ask permission. Just like he could do nothing against Job until God gave him permission. Even with Peter, Jesus said, hey, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He had to ask. He has to get permission. So here, the enemy has permission. There's a portion that we looked at back when we were studying through the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, I want to read verses 23 through 28, just so you can, again, have this understanding of what's going on. In Daniel chapter 7, beginning verse 23, and he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different than all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample and break it in pieces. The ten horns are the ten kings who shall arise from his kingdom, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the first ones, and he shall subdue the first three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. So we see here, just who he is. This is the Antichrist. He's the fourth beast. He's the one who comes from the revived Roman Empire. He's going to have those ten nations. He's going to subdue three kings. And of course, what verse 25 of Daniel 7 says, his pompous words are against God. He always wants to go against God. Now, it declares this in verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, and he shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall indeed intend to change times and the law. And the saints shall be given into his hand 
again, for a time, times, and half a time. So we note here that even Daniel recognized that with the Antichrist when the Antichrist comes onto the scene, that he's going to come, he's going to blaspheme, but he's going to persecute the saints of the Most High, and the saints shall be given into his hand. A lot of times we have this mindset that because we are Christians, and because God has said, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, and we have these promises that, that no evil can befall us. Zechariah, in his prophecies, made this statement. I'm going to start reading from verse 13. I'm going to read all the way into chapter 14, verse 5. But in Zechariah 13, verse 7, it declares this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. So in other words, slay the Messiah. Says the Lord, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So you think about this. If we're thinking that no harm can befall us, keep in mind no harm can befall us eternally. No one can snatch us out of the Lord's hand. But it doesn't necessarily mean that on this side that we are invincible, that on this side of earth, why? Because if Jesus Christ can die, don't think that we are an exception. The servant is not greater than his master. So he does say, you know, wake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. So as he's saying here, when the attack comes against the saints, two-thirds of the saints are going to be wiped out but one third shall be left in it. And I will bring the one third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined. So two thirds are going to perish. One third is going to live. And God is going to, when they live, he's going to do this to them. He's going to refine them. Now, I don't know about you, but do you understand what the refining process is? When you refine metals, what God does is he puts you into a furnace and then he melts you. And eventually what happens is this, that the, the degree of the metal is so hot that the heavier metal now releases its impurities. The impurities float to the top as a slag and God just wipes off the slag and the metal becomes pure. But understand, it has to release its impurities. And has that ever happened to you where God says, I want you to let something go. Just let this go. Yeah, nah. And all of a sudden he turns up the heat. I'm like, oh, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, just let this go. It'll be fine. And you go, no, I don't want it. And then the heat gets hotter. And it gets hotter to the point where what? You don't want to hold on to it anymore. Now it's up to you how desperately you hold on to these things that God says to get rid of to how hot the temperature is. Eventually, as a Christian, you get used to, when you feel a little warmth, what do you want me to get rid of, Lord? What do you want me? I don't want to hold anything. Just If it's, if it's getting warm on the backside, just, just let it go. I, I don't want to hold on to anything. But we see here that verse 9, I will bring one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And, and they will call on my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Behold, 
This is chapter 14, verse 1. The day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem and the city shall be taken. The houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved towards the north and half of it moved to the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So here he says there's going to be this persecution. And within this persecution, there is going to be a death. And sometimes we just don't always understand that many times God will allow certain saints to be ushered in and certain saints he chooses to free. If you're familiar with that passage in Acts chapter 12, and that's that one where Herod eventually he goes and he figures out that he lays hold of James. And I just want to read it to you. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So understand that James is taken by Herod, and James is then killed by Herod. God allows him to be killed by the sword. Well, verse 3, because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. And it was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to the squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. So now he arrests Peter and intends to kill Peter as well. So what happens is this, is God sends the angel, wakes up Peter, says, get out of here, you're not going to die. James, I've, that was James' role. James was going to die. You, Peter, this is not your time. You're going to go forward. This isn't for you. However, although Peter does not die, we see that at the very end of chapter 12, where it says this, that then immediately the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. This is Herod. And he was eaten by worms and died. So although here God allowed Herod to have authority over James and his life to take James home. But he didn't allow, you know, the authority over Peter to take Peter home. He says, I got another plan for you. So keep in mind that there are certain times that God is going to allow some to perish and others to survive. Well, why does God allow some Christians to die and others to live? We don't know. God is sovereign in these things. In the same way as when he was talking to Peter, remember when he told Peter how Peter would die? And in John 21, verse 19, he spoke this signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. He 
He says, okay, Peter, this is what, now you feed her, follow me. That's all you do, follow me. And I'll be honest with you, Christian, that when God calls you, regardless of what your path is, your path to glory, follow God. Don't worry about all these other things, but follow God. And that's what he told Peter, follow me. Then Peter, verse 20 of John 21, turned around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Speaking of John, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? And I love the Lord's answer. Jesus said this, what if I will that he remain till I come? What is that to you? You follow me. Why are we so concerned about God? Why do I have to go through this and they don't have to go through this? Well, you follow me. Whatever the path that I have for you, keep in mind that God says, this is the right path for you. It's the right path for me. I don't question God's path. If he chooses to say, I want to take you, then take me, Lord. I'm okay with that. But if you choose to have me come and stay, I'm okay with that too, Lord. I'm all right. Because I know this, that death isn't the end for a Christian. Death is simply the release. It's my ticket home. Either way, the most you can do is this. You can take this tent, but there's another tent that's prepared for me that God has taken the time to say, I'm going to go into heaven and I'm going to plan and I'm going to prepare and I'm going to build this vessel for you. And so he has that for us. And in that, we're just simply rejoicing in God. So keep in mind that here, the enemy, he has this hatred toward those that God loves. The other thing is this, that not only does the enemy have this hatred to whom God loves, but it makes this statement back in our text in Revelation chapter 12. I want to back up to, to verse 9 for just a second because I want you to see really what happens to the people of, of the world. It says this in Revelation 12, 9, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And it says this, And he was cast to the earth and his angels who were cast out. So understand this devil, this Satan, note what it says, who deceives the whole world. Satan is a deceiver. Satan is a liar. And what Satan will do is anyone who doesn't want to open their eyes and their heart to the truth, he will deceive them. He will blind their eyes. He will harden their hearts. And that's a work of the enemy. Remember when Paul, when he was on the way to um, Damascus to persecute the church, that eventually what, when he was blinded, eventually the something like the scales fell from his eyes and all of a sudden what, he could see spiritually as well. Satan blinds us and, and so often he blinds us, he deceives us and, and that's his goal is to deceive the whole earth. And when it comes to the deception of the earth, it's huge. I want to read to you a passage found in the book of Ezekiel. And I'm going to start reading from chapter 38, and I'm only going to read the first five verses, but I want you to see exactly what's going on, how 
God is going to say, really, there's going to be nation after nation after nation after nation that is going to want to hate Israel and one that's going to pursue him. It declares this in Ezekiel 38, the first five verses. Verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, and all splendidly clothed, and a great company with bucklers and shields, and all of them handling swords. And now he says this in verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. And Gomer and all his troops in the house of Tagarma is far north and all of its troops. Many people are with you. It's incredible just how many people are deceived. And understand that they really are deceived. There's a passage in the Gospel of John chapter 3 I, the, the key verse is verse 19, jot that down, but I want to give you a context to that. And I want to start from John chapter 3, verse 16. Why? Because I love John 3, 16. <laughs> but it declares this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now, verse 19, this is that key verse. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now understand, this is the true condemnation. Light comes in, but what happens is this, is men love darkness rather than the light. And that's what God does to every single living person. He shines the light of Christ. He shines the love of Christ. He shines the work of Christ, Jesus Christ there on the cross, dying for my sins, dying for your sins, dying for the sins of the world. And he shines that light and he says, if you want to receive this gift of love, you can. But only that gift of love brings you into my family. If you do not receive that gift of love, you will still what? You have to die for your own sins. And that death is not this physical death. It's a separation from God. And you're blinded. But what happens is this. This is the condemnation. Light has come in. Light is shining. But here's the thing. Men loved darkness rather than light. They loved their sin so much that they said, I'm not going to give this up for eternal life. And so they loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so what happens is they don't want to be shaken. They don't want to be stirred from this very comfortable place of sin and darkness. And I don't know if you've ever been woken up with a bright light and all of a sudden like, oh, your eyes are trying to adjust. And this is what happens to the sinner. God wakes you up, open your eyes, and you're trying to adjust to the light. Eventually, know what happens. Your eyes adjust to the light. 
but not initially. If initially there's this reaction to it. And he says now in verse 20 of John 3, for everyone practicing evil hates the light. If you are living a life of practice evil, here John says, you hate the light and does not come into the light lest your deeds should be exposed. This is the beauty of the Christian. And I love it because, you know, coming up in November, we're going to have that time of testimony. And the beautiful thing about the testimony of Christians is this. They have no problem saying, this was my sin and I've been forgiven. But what happens is this, that those who are loving darkness, they don't want to say, this is a sin. This isn't a sin. This isn't a sin. It might be a weakness. It might be a flaw, but it isn't sin. God says it's sin. But what happens is this, is that they, they literally, they don't want to come into the light because they'll have to admit this is sin. This is wrong. This is against the heart of God. This is against the word of God. And once you admit that, as Christians, we have no problem admitting it's sin. This is sin in my life. It's sin and I need to repent and I need to openly confess it before God that when I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sin, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so he says in verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And, and I, I think it's so important for us as Christians that we confess our wrongs. I don't have to hide my shame and my sin. Yeah, this is wrong. This is what I've done. This was my life. But yet God has redeemed this life and it's no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I want to glorify God. And so I'm going to come into the light. What? So that my deeds can be clearly seen. And it's not seen as an, oh, Lord, look at what you're doing. It's God, how you can use that guy. This is the heart to see how God can use a sinner and what a glorious thing this is. And so keep in mind that this is where men love darkness. Now, because men love darkness, in John chapter 15, I'm going to start reading from verse 18, and I'm going to read down to verse 25, but it declares this, if the world hates you, and of course it's in darkness and it hates the light, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. <laughs> you have to understand that the world that's in the sway of the enemy, it hates the woman and it hates the child and it hates God. But it hated God before it hated us. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Be, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Note this, that if you are just part of the world in its system, the world has no problem with you. But as soon as you start talking about the light, as soon as you start referring to Jesus Christ, all of a sudden there's this weird connection that people don't want to hear that. Now, it's interesting that you can tell people who sneeze, God bless you. They have no problem with that. You can say, oh, you know, God is good. And sometimes they don't have any problem with that. But when you give God a name, when you say Jesus is so good, all of a sudden they realize that you're not just one of those casual ones. Now you're the, oh, no, you're one of those Jesus people. Because you give God a name, the world has no problem thinking, oh, just God is good. Why? Because God could be anything. 
there's all kinds of gods. God could be Mother Earth. God could be this. God, you give God the name of Jesus Christ, the name that's above all names, and all of a sudden the world is going to say, this light I don't want any part of. And so this is what happens. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Do you realize the persecution that comes? They do it because the enemy wants to harm Christ. Remember what Jesus said to Saul when he was on the way to persecute the church, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What do you mean? I'm persecuting the church. No, you're persecuting me. When you, when you harm the Lord's kids, you're harming him. And this is what he realizes. He said, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. So if you are experiencing persecution because you say, I love Jesus Christ, and you're adamant about that, know that those people who hate that, they actually hate God. They actually, they, 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 they love a God of their own making, but they don't love the God of the Bible. And so he says, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and have also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in the law, they hated me without a cause. Understand that, that you know, we don't have to do something wrong in order for them to hate us. We don't have to do something wrong in order for them to you know, want to destroy us. And, and here's the issue. Once they set this satanic hatred upon you, you can't reason with them any longer. They're, 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 they're only dealing with emotion. They're not dealing with logic, and they have to hate. And because they are deceived, because they are blinded, and realize it's not the person, it's the power behind the person. The person has already rejected the light. They rejected Christ. They reject God and his plan. And so we see here that we're not greater than our master. That if they hate him, they're going to hate us as well. But here's the problem. Too often, what begins to happen is this. That within the persecution, and this happens even within the church, and this is the greatest shame. That even within the church, there has been a persecution to the nation Israel. Rather than loving Israel and praying for Israel and, and wanting God to bless Israel and bless Jerusalem and have his peace be upon them and peace be upon Jerusalem, that there is this incredible satanic hatred even in the church against the Jew. And so much so that there's this mindset that goes on. It's called replacement theology, that God has now allowed the church to replace all the promises of the Jew, and he's cast off the Jew. Well, understand, there's some truth to that. God has cast off that branch, but eventually he's going to graft them back in. 
we're not here as those who are greater. But people have used the scripture and they've quoted scripture in order to really bring about this hatred towards the Jew, this persecution towards the woman. If you're familiar with that passage in John chapter 8, I just want to read to you one verse, jot it down. John 8, 44. Here, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and he says this, You are of your father, the devil. He said, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and there's no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a a liar and the father of it. This is what we see here, that people will use these passages like this to say, wow, here the Jews, the Jews are of their father, the devil. And literally what they're saying is the Jews are satanic. And as they do this, they're taking it out of context. It was a portion of the Jews, yes. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to read verses 14 through 16. It says this, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and that persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men. Now here, what this, you know, Paul wrote to Thessalonica is these Jews, they murdered Jesus Christ. They killed him. They persecuted. And it says at the very end, they persecuted us and they do not please God. So people will take these passages and they'll literally look and say, yes, here the Jews, they are of their father, the devil. They persecuted, they killed Jesus Christ. Also in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 22, let me read 22 through 25 just so you can grasp what they're doing. It says this, Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. And then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried all of the more saying, let him be crucified. And Pilate, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that his, this uh, tumult was rising, he took water washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. And the people answered and said, his blood be upon us and our children. And so people will use these these verses and they'll use these things and they'll many times seek to want to hate the Jew because of these verses. And because of these verses that they're taking out of the context and they say, we just need to hate all Jews because they're of Satan and they're liars and and they don't please God. No, a, a portion of them were. But understand, God's heart is still set upon the Jew. He still loves the Jew. They are still his chosen people. They are loved. And he's going to take them and he's going to refine them. But we see here that the Jews, they were a despised people. And people thought that they, that's what God wanted them, is to be a despised people. And they were meant to wander the earth in, in misery and, and just in this marginality where all of a sudden um, we see here that there is no great love for the Jew. 
Even as we were going through the, the letters to the churches, remember in chapter 3, verse 9, when we talked about here, it said, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. And they, they talk about these Jews. They say they're of the synagogue of Satan. And because of this, there are many, many Christians today who have a hatred towards the Jew. Now, I'm going to shock some of you this morning, and I don't mean to shock you out of your comfort zone, but I think it's important to realize that one of the great fathers of the church, Luther, Luther himself, he wrote a booklet called On Jews and Their Lies. And I want to share with you just a couple of things that were written by John Luther. And, and as, as he comes, and, and as Luther is literally great within the church, I want you to see his heart and what he has done. He wrote this little tiny pamphlet called On Jews and Their Lies, and he says, I have published this little book so that I might be found among those who opposed such poisonous activities of the Jews. He said this, set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt what will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians. He said, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed, for they pursued in them the same aims as in their synagogues. Instead, they might be lodged under a roof or in a barn like gypsies. This will bring them that they are living that they are not masters in our country as they boast, but they are living in exile and in captivity as they incessantly wail and lament about us before God. I advised that usury be prohibited to them. In other words, don't lend them anything. And that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. They have no other means of earning a livelihood than usury, and by it they have stolen and robbed from us all that they, all that they possess. So he was saying that the Jews, because God had blessed them and they had money that they would borrow, they'd become bankers, and they said, the Jews, they're making their money off of us, and we need to take their money, we need to destroy their synagogues, destroy their homes, put them in barns so they could see who the real masters are. He said, I command putting a flail, an axe, a hole, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses and letting them earn their bread by the sweat of their brow. It is not fitting that they should let us, a cursed goyim, toil in the sweat of our faces while they, the holy people, idle away their time behind the stove feasting and farting and on top of it boasting blasphemy of their lordship over the Christians by means of our sweat, no one should toss out, no, one should toss out these lazy rogues by the scat, by the seat of their pants. Accordingly, it must 
not, it must and dare not be considered a trifling matter, but a most serious one to seek counsel against this and to save our souls from the Jews, from, that is, from the devil and from eternal death. The devil has emptied his stomach again and again. That is true relic, which the Jews and those who want to be Jews kiss, eat, and drink, and worship. They are our public enemies. If they could kill us all, they would gladly do it. And they do it often, especially those who pose as physicians. Although sometimes they help, for the devil helps to finish it in the end, they administer poison to someone from which he could die in an hour, a month, and a year, 10 or 20 years, and they are able to practice this art. So here the Jews, as their doctors, they seek to help. Yeah, you do save some, but others die. Tell me what doctor can save everyone. And it's important how you see this hatred that has come against the Jews. And this is Martin Luther. This is Martin Luther. This, this is Luther who's saying these things. And it's incredible to see the hatred of what we say is one of the church fathers towards the Jews. And to be honest, there are a lot of Christians who literally hold on to this tripe. They hold on to it and they have that same heart, that same bitterness towards the Jews. I, I read an article on Wednesday and I want to read it again. It's just a short article. It's, a, it's an article that was written by um, Sebastian Rodriguez. This is back in November 21, 2004. And he, he wrote this article. Of course, his name is a pseudonym. He didn't want to be known and, and have a persecution come against him. But he was walking down the streets in Barcelona. He was walking there in Spain, and he was observing what was happening in his culture. And as he was walking down the streets, this is the article that he wrote, just a small one. I walked down the street in Barcelona and suddenly discovered a terrible truth. Europe died in Auschwitz. We killed six million Jews and replaced them with 20 million Muslims. In Auschwitz, we burned culture, thought, creativity, and talent. We destroyed the chosen people, truly chosen because they produced great and wonderful people who changed the world. The contribution of this people is felt in all areas of life, science, art, international trade, and above all, the consciousness of the world. These are the people we burned. And under the pretense of tolerance, because we wanted to prove ourselves that we were cured of the disease of racism, we opened our gates to 20 million Muslims who brought to us stupidity and ignorance, religious extreme extremism, a lack of tolerance, crime, and poverty due to the unwillingness to work and to support their families with pride. They have blown up our trains, turned our beautiful Spanish cities into the third world, drowning in filth and crime. They are shut up in apartments they received free from the government. They plan the murder and the destruction of their naive hosts. And thus, in our misery, we have exchanged culture for fanatical hatred, creative skill for destructive skill, intelligence for backwardness and superstition. We have exchanged the pursuit of peace of the Jews of Europe 
and their talent for a better future for their children, they're determined clinging to life because life is holy for those who pursue death, for the people consumed by the desire for death for themselves and for others and for our children and for theirs. What a terrible mistake was made by a miserable Europe. And it's interesting how this man, Sebastian Rodriguez, would look at just what it was that they had done in Europe and how they had taken away this culture that when you really looked at it, it wasn't like Martin Luther said. It wasn't destructive, but it was blessing. They would bless the culture. And wherever there was a blessing to the Jews, people would be blessed. Wherever there was a despising of the Jews, God says, I'm going to despise you. So understand, you're going to reap what you sow. When you sow to that destruction. You're going to reap the destruction. When you sow to life and love, you're going to reap those things. And I think it's important to realize here why the enemy is so pursuing here the woman and her offspring. And it is because they are the light. God has come into them and has allowed the light to shine from them, and the enemy hates the darkness. And so he will deceive the world into hating the darkness. Now, their own flesh will love the darkness, but he will come upon them in a special way that their hatred will come towards the Jew. And it's interesting that when you look at culture and you realize that the, the, the Jews that the only time that you see an attack of the Jews is in retaliation. When someone lobs missiles over, they say, you lob missiles, we're going to come and we're going to retaliate. And, and so ben, Benjamin Netanyahu once said this, that if you disarm the Palestinians, there would be peace. But if you disarm the Jews, there would be no Israel. And, and it's true in that way. And so you see here that there's just this hatred towards a culture that blesses the world. I mean, you think about how small the Jewish population is and how many hundreds of Nobel Peace Prizes they've won for science and medicines and art and peace. All these things come from the Jews who are just a small percentage of the population, like 0.05. And yet you have the Muslims who are like 20% and, and their Peace Prizes are under 50 and the Jews are over 200, almost in the 300 mark. It's crazy to see how much the, the, the Jews are, you know, being such a small population, are blessing the world with all of its knowledge and wisdom and goodness. And, and they gave us the scriptures. They gave us the understanding that we could know our Savior. This is that culture. And yet they're hated by the world. It's interesting that, that there's this whole thing within the cultures. Don't say anything bad about a Muslim. Don't say anything bad about a Muslim. And I, I think, okay, that's fine. Uh, that's okay. But why is it always okay to say something horrible against the Jew? And yet, yet that's considered okay. That's considered tolerant. You can say anything you want, but you can't say anything bad against what? The extremists? And I find it interesting to see that the reason they're doing this is what? They're blinded. Just understand, they're blinded. And then our goal is, is not to try to argue because you can't reason. Our goal is what? Go in their closets and pray. Go in and say, God, open their eyes and open their hearts that they may come to the light, that they may come to you, Christ. And when they come to you, realize that, that they're going to love the things that you love. 
And they're going to take on the whole of the scripture and realize that, that our desire as a church is to bless the nation Israel, is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, is to say, Lord, what can we do to honor you and to honor those that you have chosen? We're thankful, Lord, that you've chosen us. And we realize there's an enemy of our soul. But we, we come to realize here that we have to be careful not to take scripture out of its context. Because there are those who hate the Jews and they do it and they justify it because it's in Scripture. They're of their father, the devil, and, and their, their, their deeds are evil and they're, they're not righteous and God wants to dispose of them. And they're of the synagogue of saying all these things are true, but they're of what? A remnant who are what? Who are trying to prevent Christ from coming and in the same way as that remnant hated the prophets, that remnant then hates the, the light of Christ, there's still that remnant. But that remnant is no different than the remnant of the world. It's just they're blinded like everyone else has been blinded, like I was blinded and you were blinded until God opened up our hearts. And I think it's important to realize when we come and say, wow, what is going on? Why is there such hatred? The, the hatred is this. There is light and there is darkness. If you are in the light, the darkness will hate you. And if you're in the light, what you need to do is this. You need to pray for those in the darkness. Not hate back. You need to pray for those in the darkness. And let that be our heart. Amen? Well, Father, we do thank you for this word. And Father, I know there was a lot. There's a lot of detail, a lot of information. But Lord, it was your word. And your word is what opens up how you love Israel. How you love us, your church. And you do love us. You do have a plan for us. And you have made a way for us to come near to you and to grow in you. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to no longer be deceived. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of salvation. And we want to pray for those, Lord, who are in darkness. Father, every one of us have, have people in our mind and our heart, even right now. And we lift those people before you, Lord that you would do the work. Father, forgive your church for the lies that she has believed, for the hatred of your chosen people, Israel. And Father, um, draw your church back into your heart, that we would be those who love, that we would be those who want to bless, that we would be those who want to reveal to the Jews their Messiah has come. Come and worship the Christ. And so, Father, let that be our heart. Let that be our desire for you. And, Father, just with the persecution, we, we've learned today that there are some who may perish and some who will live. And it's not up to us who, to decide or to argue or to debate because you're good and you have a plan. But, Father, while we're here, while we're here, Father, help us to serve you. In, 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 in faithfulness, in sincerity, in the power of the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.